Today our scripture is from Luke 14, 15 through 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. All right. New City, it's great to be with you today, both online and in person. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Roger Rushing, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New City. And we're continuing our series, our BLESS series this week. Just as a quick recap or to bring you up to speed, BLESS is an acronym that we're using to help us see some ways that we can engage with and certainly show love to our neighbor. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Nate brought the message, the B, which is begin with prayer. And in that, we talked about how we need to, to be prayerful in our, in our lives, both to be attentive to what God has for us and also to be praying for our neighbors, to hear about their stories and how we can, how we can join with them in their celebrations and in their, in their difficult times as well through prayer. If you've been a part of New City for any amount of time, you've probably heard that one of the prayers we pray often here at New City is the Lord's Prayer, and especially the part where it talks about, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we tend to personalize that a little bit more. We pray together, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in Albuquerque as it is in heaven. And another prayer that we pray commonly here at New City, especially your staff team and the elders, we pray often a prayer that comes from Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so he admonishes them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. And I'm excited to tell you today, we've been praying that prayer daily as a team, and we are very excited about the opportunities we have because the harvest is so plentiful. And as Analia was telling us in the announcement, we need some good workers. And so we have this opportunity now for us to, to kind of meld these two prayers together because when we pray that prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done, part of that prayer is asking God, how can I be a part of that? How can you use me to bring your kingdom and to fulfill your will here in Albuquerque just as it is in heaven? And one way you can do that is by responding to that call because the harvest is plentiful, but we need some more workers. And so a few of the, the places that we need, I'm just going to mention two of them. There are a lot, a lot more opportunities, so if these two don't float your boat, that's okay. But two of our critical needs right now, uh, the second most important is our tech team. And you see there's a lot that goes into making these services happen, but with the addition of our online service, we've more than doubled our, our tech team, and so we need more people in those roles. So if you like video, audio, if you like troubleshooting, if you're good with computers, uh, if you like doing presentations, any of these things, we can use you, and it'd be great if you could help us out in that way and be a part of furthering this mission. Uh, we've got some great team leads for that, and they'll work with you and train you and also disciple you in the midst of that. And then, of course, our biggest need that you're probably aware of is Kids City. 
So we are green now. Uh, we have all of this new opportunity. All of these restrictions are being eased, and we're finding that the limiter for us is not so much COVID anymore. Obviously, we still have to socially distance, and that impacts capacity, and we have to do masks. But the biggest limiter right now is the harvest is plentiful, but we need some more workers. And so we already have been able to increase this weekend our capacity back there, but still just for the two through five-year-olds. We want to be able to add more classes. We want to get back to a full kid's city with a full range and certainly bringing elementary back. But in order to do that, we need some more workers. And so we have this unique opportunity today to be an answer to this prayer that we've been praying. And so you have this number uh, that you can text SERVE to. If you're interested in these areas or any others, please do that. You can even do it right now. I won't be offended if you pull out your cell phone. If you're at home on your couch, pull out your cell phone, text, takes about 10 seconds and we'll get you connected. There are lots of opportunities in Kids City besides actually teaching the kids. There's assistance and check-in, uh, but also teachers as well. So we encourage you uh, to be prayful, prayerful in that way and help us to serve the kids of our city through the ministry here at New City. And then last week, uh, Pastor Christian brought this message about listening and how we should listen to our neighbors. And again, even if we're gonna pray for them, it helps if we listen to our neighbors, if we find out what their hopes and dreams, aspirations, fears, all of these things so that we can do life with them. But Pastor Christian pointed out too that we not only listen to our neighbors, we listen to God. We have to attune our heart and our mind to hear the voice of our shepherd so that we can see those opportunities that are all around us to care for and to enter in the life of our neighbors but if we're, if we're too busy and we're listening to all this other stuff, it's hard for us to see and to hear those opportunities. So today we're moving on to E, which is eat. Now, I'm not saying that the fact that I have eat this week is typecasting, uh, but I, I think it's pretty easy. You look at me and you go, that guy probably knows how to eat, right? Like, he knows his way around a knife and fork, and this is true. Uh, I love to eat. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. Uh, I enjoy food, maybe more than I should. Uh, and so I'm excited to get to talk to you about eating today, but it's a different kind of eating. Because I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of my eating isn't intentional. Uh, and a lot of my eating even gets to the point where it's mindless. I mean, I get busy, and so maybe I'm scarfing down a burger in the car on my way from one appointment to another, right? Or occasionally, I even miss meals because I've gotten so busy, but I try to make up for those later, and I clearly do a good job of that. Uh, but we, we don't always eat with intention, and so that's the kind of eating that I want to talk about today. It's the kind of eating that was important to Jesus. We see that, that meals were a big part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we have so many stories that either take place at a meal or Jesus is talking about a meal. And all throughout the Gospels, we see this, just a few accounts, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding feast. And probably the most famous miracle that most everybody knows is the feeding of the 5,000, where he takes a little kid's lunch and of, of just a few fish and loaves, and he multiplies that out and feeds a crowd of 5,000 and certainly eats with them as well. And then what's really interesting to me is if you skip to the end, you get to the resurrection, we don't have a lot of stories in the Gospels about what happens after the resurrection. We only have a few. And what's interesting is at least three of those deal with eating. Jesus is eating. And what's really cool is some of the people that Jesus appears to in these stories, they don't know who he is. They can't recognize him until he breaks the bread and eats with them. And then suddenly they see this is the risen Lord. See, eating was really important to Jesus' ministry. And Jesus ate with those that you would probably expect him to eat with, but he also ate with the unexpected. 
So he did eat with the leaders. He ate with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, but then he also ate with sinners. He ate with lepers, which was really unusual. He ate with tax collectors, which is a very special type of sinner back in that day, uh, certainly not today. Um, he ate with both men and women. He ate with friends and strangers, and he even ate with his enemies. And so we see that eating was so important to Jesus. In fact, he developed a reputation. In Matthew 11, we see that he was called a glutton and a drunk because he ate so much and so often. Now, obviously, part of this, a big part of that had to do with the people he ate with because he ate with a lot of the wrong people. And Jesus tended to care more about the people than the process. And so he didn't adhere strictly to all of the different rules and dietary issues and all those things, those complexities, because he cared more about sharing the meal with the people. So certainly that's where some of that reputation comes from, but still he was known as a glutton and a drunkard because so much of his ministry and his doing life with people was around meals. But Jesus also used meals to teach, to teach us aspects of the kingdom of God. Often he would tell parables and make analogies and metaphors and say the kingdom of God is like this, and then he would tell us about a banquet or a feast or a party or a meal. And that's what we see happening in our passage today from Luke 14. This whole thing is taking place at a dinner party. So Jesus has been invited by one of the chief Pharisees to come and, and share the Sabbath meal at his home. And not just with him, but with a bunch of other religious leaders as well. As well. Excuse me. And so that's what we see. The first half of Luke 14, we see three different movements in this dinner party. And this is the third and final movement that we see. And what was common at that time, and I think the reason that they invited Jesus to their home, was Jesus was this up-and-coming rabbi, and he was getting this really big following, especially of the common people. And so what they would do is the religious leaders would come, and they would, would take somebody like that, or new rabbi showing up on the scene, and they would invite them over, and they would begin to test them. And testing usually has this, when we talk about testing Jesus and, and stuff, it has, has these negative connotations. But really, this was standard practice. The idea was, you bring this rabbi in, you throw out some test questions to find out, is what he's teaching, is it orthodox? Is it in line with what we believe? Can we support it, or is this something that we need to put down? And so this is actually what's taking place here in Luke 14, verse 15, when it says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it might not seem like it, but this is the test. And this would be a typical thing that they would bring up. And then Jesus would be expected to respond in a certain way. And what this test is referencing is it's referencing something called the Messianic Banquet, which was this, it's this vision of this great celebration that would happen at the end of time when those who are faithful would be invited to the table to eat with Messiah and with God. And so Jesus would be expected to reply something like this. Oh, that we might keep the law perfectly so that when that great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all true believers at his banquet. So they would answer that way, and then they would say, check, that's great. Now let's move on to more complex stuff, and maybe we can even learn from each other here. And you would open up because you had the same foundational place to start from. But we see that that's not how Jesus replies. Instead, he tells a story. But before we get into Jesus' story, I want to look a little bit more about this, this messianic banquet and what that was and this conversation that they're having because the conversation that Jesus and his religious leaders are having 
really started about 700 years earlier with the vision of this banquet that Isaiah had, the prophet Isaiah had, that we see in Isaiah chapter 25. So beginning in verse 6, this is the vision. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, it's an important part right there, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Sounds like my kind of party. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So how is this reference to the Messianic banquet, how is that a test, the litmus test for this new rabbi? Well, it's easy for us to to miss that there were actually different interpretations and ways of thinking going on in Jesus' life. See, we have the Bible, we have the, the, the scriptures that have been canonized, and we look back at Isaiah 25, and we can read that, and we, we can see that vision, and we think we know what that means. But at the time of that first century, where Jesus' life is happening, there were actually multiple kind of interpretations and understandings of the Messianic banquet going around. One of those, we've, we've actually got a few documents that help show us and give us insight into what they were thinking, and one of those comes from something called the Targum which was an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So it used to be that the people of Israel, the Jews, they all spoke Hebrew, they knew Hebrew, obviously the scriptures were in Hebrew, but then something called exile happened when they were carried off to a foreign land. And decades later, when these people began to return, it turned out that their primary language was no longer Hebrew, it was now Aramaic, because that was the language that they grew up with and that was the language that they were taught. And so synagogues began to sprout up, and they would teach at synagogues. They would read the Hebrew scriptures, but then they would orally translate them into Aramaic so that people could understand. It'd be kind of like if you go to a Catholic mass, and a lot of it's in Latin. And if you're like me, you don't know Latin. And then they tell you what's happening in English. Sometimes they don't even tell you. But they tell you what's happening in English so you can understand it. It'd be similar to that. Well, the Targum comes about about the first century, and it's actually a written translation of the Hebrew scriptures. But it's not a word-for-word translation. It's more of an expanded translation. Kind of if you took translation and commentary and added them together. And so they're trying to explain what the Hebrew really means. The problem is that sometimes it would come up against scriptures that didn't really fit with who they thought God was. And so clearly that must not be what it is. That's a translation issue. And so sometimes the scribes would take a lot of liberty in the way that they expanded these translations. So we have a similar account of Isaiah 25 in the Targum, and it starts out this way. Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples in this mountain a meal. Sounds pretty familiar. It's like what we just read. We're off to a good start, but then it takes a real bad turn. And although they suppose, that's all nations, suppose it is an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. So it turns out that the table is actually a trap. See, they looked at it and they said, this says all peoples, but it definitely doesn't mean Gentiles, the outsiders. It doesn't mean the people that took us into exile, right? It certainly doesn't mean the Romans who are now ruling over us and beating us into submission and killing us and taking our land. So obviously, even though God invited all of the nations to the table, it was really just a trap. 
And so that was the interpretation that they had. And we have another interpretation of the Messianic banquet that we find in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's called the Messianic Rule Scroll. These scrolls were written and preserved by a community called the Qumran community. And we get a glimpse of who they thought would be at this table. Now remember, we've already seen in the Targum, it's only going to be Israel. And the Qumran scroll uh, recognizes that as well, but they go further to even exclude some within Israel. And so they say that no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or mute or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. So even those who are in Israel, there are some who are disqualified from this banquet. And so this is why Jesus doesn't give the expected response because he understands that not everybody in that room actually understands the banquet that he's talking about. So instead, he tells his own banquet story. And it's a very different story. It's a story of this nobleman who's having this great banquet and he sends out servants to invite you know, some of his peers and also some of the higher-ups that are still below him, but to invite the cream of the crop to this meal. And this would be a, a great honor, but it would also be shameful to turn down this invitation. It would bring shame to you, and it would also shame the host. And so it was this honor-shame thing going on that's really complex for us to understand, but they go out and they invite, and if you couldn't make it, you had to have a good excuse. And when they went out and invited, it wasn't like uh, a Google Meets invite or you know, something like that. They didn't have text message and Facebook and all that. You went out and you did an initial invite. You got RSVPs so you knew how many goats to slaughter, all that good stuff. And then you just set a day for the celebration, but there was no time associated with it. Because it takes time to slaughter the animals and to prepare. And so what you would do is once everything was ready, you would go back to those who had said yes and say, come and eat. The table's set, it's ready. And that's what we see happening here. The servant goes out to tell them, you've already said yes, come and eat. And now we start seeing all of them turning down the master and they're offering the most flimsy of excuses. And we don't really have time to look at each, each excuse, but I can categorize them all this way. It's like, guys, if you ask a girl out and she says, I can't, I'm washing my hair. Uh, if that's happened to you, I hate to tell you she's not actually washing her hair. She just has no interest in you, right? It's a flimsy excuse, and it's maybe even tongue-in-cheek. Maybe it's even to tell you, I have so little interest in you, I'm not even going to make up an excuse. That's what's going on here. They're actually actively trying to injure this master. They're trying to hurt him and shame him. And what's worse is these, this isn't an individual effort. They have clearly gotten together and organized and come up with this plan to bring great shame to this man. And not only that, to stop the banquet. So we see in verse 21, when the master hears that the guests aren't coming, it says that the master became angry. And this is just a quick side note. It's not the message today, but it's a quick side note of what the master does with that anger. Because see, the master could, and has even legal right, go and take vengeance against these people. Whether that be violence or taking their property, even throwing them in prison, he could act against them in violent ways. But here's what the master does with, the, with his anger. The master opts for grace instead of vengeance. So instead of going out and attacking these who have attacked him, he says, throw open the doors. Go out, extend this table then to all these other people. And so he tells the servant to go to the streets and the lanes of the city. And we can kind of see this as 
going to all of Israel. Go to everybody else, the ones that think, they aren't dis- that think they're disqualified. And look who it is specifically. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the specific people that the Qumran community said, nah, they're not even real Israelites. They can't sit at the table. So the master first says, go to all of them. And then the servant comes back and says, it's been done. And I love this line. And there is still room. So what does the master do now? Now the master says, go outside of Israel. Go outside of the cities and the lanes. Instead, go to the highways and the hedges. Go to the edges where you find the foreigners, the ones who have no right to sit at that table, and compel them to come in. And this compel is not like beat them over the head until they're willing to come. It's compel in the sense of convince because they're going to be so convinced that they're disqualified because they have been told for so long that they are disqualified. And so if you come to them and invite them, they might even smell a trap. You might say table, and they might sense trap. And the master says, compel them, convince them that this invitation is for you. This table is set for you. What's kind of interesting here is we don't actually see the servant fulfill this request. The other one, he comes back and says, I've done what you said, and there's still room. But we don't have that here. This is the end. There's no conclusion. And I think the reason is because Jesus is kind of using his life to tell this story. And we're only at a certain point. Jesus hasn't yet opened up the mission to the Gentiles. But he will. And so we find at the end of Matthew, at one of those resurrection accounts, we see Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. And he sends out his church, and he says, go to Judea, go to Samaria, and go to the edges of the earth. So what's cool is we both benefit from this invitation, but are now charged with giving this invitation because most, if not all of us here today, are Gentiles. And so we are incorporated into that. The servant does go out and give that invitation, and we now are compelled to come, even those of us who think that we've been disqualified, even those of us who maybe, unfortunately, the church has told us time and time again, we're disqualified. This table is actually for us. But then we, as a body of Christ, we become the servant who goes out to the hedges, to the highways, and the byways, to the edges, and beyond. See, the table, what's cool about it, it's not just come to the table, it's go and take the table. Extend the table out. So I mentioned before that there are a lot of eating passages that I could have picked. A lot of times we see Jesus eating and teaching about eating, and honestly, this one is a little bit weird to teach from today. Because my goal and and our hopes are that you'll go out and eat, that you'll eat with intention, that you'll eat missionally with other people. And so I could have picked a lot of examples where Jesus is doing that specifically. But the reason I chose this passage is because I think it helps us to work against some mistakes that we sometimes make or be inclined to make when we want to eat in this way. Now, some of you may be thinking, dude, I've been eating my whole life. I've got it figured out. I get that. But there are mistakes that we can make when eating. And what do I mean by mistakes? Well, I knew a guy, uh, a friend of mine, who would eat a candy bar with a fork and knife. That's the wrong way to eat a candy bar. Uh, I have another story. I don't have time to tell the whole thing, but I was in the Dominican Republic on a mission trip, and I accidentally put uh, hot chocolate over my scrambled eggs. That is the wrong way to eat scrambled eggs. Those aren't the types of mistakes I'm talking about, though. The types of mistakes that I'm talking about come from some misconceptions that we can have. And sometimes they're so deeply rooted that we don't even realize that they're there. They're a little subconscious. And I feel like Jesus in this parable helps us to to work against some of those misconceptions. 
So I've, I've brought out four missional meal misconceptions for us to look at. How's that for alliteration? The first one is that we decide who gets to come to the table. We decide because we're doing the inviting that we get to decide who comes to the table. We think sometimes that we're the gatekeeper. And this is the misconception that this story works against the best. Because for Jesus' banquet, he makes it clear, Jesus' banquet is for everyone. Even the outcast and the outsider, the other, none are disqualified. In fact, in the story, we find that the only ones who don't eat at the table are the ones who choose not to come. That's it. Otherwise, it's wide open. And so we can have this misconception, and I know that you probably don't think that you do, and maybe you don't, maybe it's just me, but there are times when we intentionally or unintentionally think of ourselves as the gatekeepers. And I know this is true because unfortunately the church as a whole, not New City, but like the historical church, has often thought of themselves as the gatekeepers, the ones who decide who's in and who's out, and so much of religion is about just that, defining if you are in or if you are out. And Jesus says, not at my banquet. So that's our first misconception that we can have. The second is this, that we think we invite projects. And what I mean by that is we might look at this, we might be well-intentioned, but we might look at this and go, who needs to sit at my table? And I go, oh man, you know, like, her life's pretty messed up. His isn't going so great. I should invite them to the table and fix them, right? And it's this misconception we have to remember that people aren't projects. Believe it or not, people are people. And yes, there's brokenness. And yes, we want to enter into that and, 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 and live into that. Sometimes it's just suffering alongside of them and letting them know they're not alone. But we also have to recognize our own brokenness. And we have to recognize that that's there too. And we are not here to, to be in the business of fixing people, right? We are in the business of loving people and doing life with people. And again, it might not rise to the front of your mind, but it's something that we need to be asking ourselves because sometimes it's deep. And so we need to go through these misconceptions and say, am I doing this to help us see and really evaluate? The third one is that we have an agenda. Because again, I'm telling you, we need to be intentional. Intentional, missional meals. This sounds like an agenda. Like we've got an agenda. The purpose of this meal is not just to eat. The purpose of this meal is to do something and more often we think it's so that they will do something. And we have to understand that we don't love with an agenda. And I put it in quotes because love doesn't have an agenda. But we don't love with an agenda. Our only agenda is love. We love not so that they will anything. We love them because God loves us. And that same God loves them. And here's the thing, in loving them, by God's grace, we will eventually come to realize that there really is no us and them. That this is a false reality that we've created. That there's really not an us and a them. And God, there's only all. All are accepted. All are equal. All are valued. All are loved. And so our only agenda is to love as Christ loved. And then here's the fourth one. Uh, our misconception can be that we're serving a meal. This is where it starts getting a little bit more practical for us. We think that, oh, okay, we're supposed to have a dinner party. We're serving a meal. Like, that's kind of the point of this. And what we need to realize is we're not serving a meal. We're serving people. The meal is just the excuse. It's just that thing that lets us and helps us to do life together. 
That doesn't mean eating is not important. There's so much culturally that goes on with eating and we share ourselves with one another. But the actual meal itself does not matter. So don't stress about what you eat. And more importantly, don't stress about what you're serving. You may be thinking already where I'm going with this, that I'm going to encourage us to have these intentional missional meals, and blocks may already be coming up in your head. We're like, man, my house is not clean. My house is never clean. John and I both work full-time, and we've got two little kids. You clean that house, and no joke, by the time you turn around, literally, they have destroyed it again. It is never clean. I've got a super old dog that just spreads her dog food out all over the whole house. It is never clean. So that could be a roadblock for you, but again, the meal is not the point. You don't have to have a spotless house. You may be thinking, I've got to prepare some Michelin star, five-course gourmet meal. You don't. We don't serve meals. We're serving people. And we can start small. You can go out to eat. You don't even have to cook. I know it's a little bit tricky with COVID, right? But things are opening up. You can go out to eat. Have somebody else cook. You know, have somebody else keep the place clean. Or don't even start with food. Take somebody to coffee. You can start small because we don't need to stress about what we're eating because that's, that's really not the point. And there are a lot of other ways that we can be creative in how we fulfill this mission. This might be something that's not a challenge to you. You might think, ah, oh, no problem, I do this all the time. Well, good for you. For some people like me, this is a challenge. I'm an introvert. I have a hard time thinking about bringing people into my home and, and I have a hard time approaching people. I have a really hard time with small talk and all the kind of social things that go with that. Once we become friends, it's fine, but you got to do all this stuff to get there, and I'm really bad at all that stuff. So it's stressful and difficult. So for some of you, this might be a challenge to you. I know it is for me. But there are creative ways for us to think about how to extend that table, not just invite to the table, but extend to the table. In fact, I want us to see one story. This is not the way to do it. There's no the way to do this, but this is one story that shows us a creative answer to fulfilling this mission. So many of you know Kim and Easton Garcia, and they, uh, they're out exploring the world in their RV right now. But before they left, they made this video for us and the way to show us a little bit about way, the way that they have embodied this bringing the table to others. So let's take a look at this. Hi, my name is Kimberly, and this is my husband, Easton. We've been going to New City now for 11 years on Easter since the very beginning. We have four kids, and we love being at New City. So we read about the turquoise table a number of years ago. There's a book, and a woman talks about a very ordinary experience of having a table delivered in her front yard, and just having this light bulb moment of why don't I have a table in my front yard where I could interact with my neighbors? Um, so we thought that we could pretty easily put one in our front yard and start building relationships around a table. <laughs> we had a birthday party once around the turquoise table and the FedEx lady came and was delivering packages to our front door. And as she sort of Walking by this chaos, she said, you guys, is this a daycare or something? And we were just, we were all cracking up and saying, no, it's just our family just trying to, trying to have a safe birthday party around a turquoise table. We did some neighborhood walks um, towards the beginning of the pandemic, and we used chalk and we drew 
hearts and hope and love and joy in front of every mailbox. And we didn't hear too much about it at the time, but just a few months ago, I was talking to our neighbor two doors down and she was telling me how she came home that day that we wrote that on her and we had written hope on her on her mailbox, um, in front of her mailbox. And she said that that was exactly what she needed that day. I think that so many people are scared to do hospitality because they want their house to look perfect. Um, they want it cleaned up and, and they don't know the right food to serve. Or I think that that's a huge barrier to hospitality. But I think that moving a table, just a table out to the front yard and moving some of your stuff out to the front yard, it takes so much of that barrier away. So for some of you, you may be thinking neighboring sounds like a, like a hard calling. My challenge would be to one, learn your neighbor's names, learn them more than just the guy in the red car or the family with the blue garage door or whatever, and then learn their hopes and their hurts, find out what's important to them and join them in those things, celebrate those things and mourn those things with them. And then thirdly, I'd challenge you to push something that you do in your house, in your backyard to your front yard and just watch what the Lord does with that. I, I would imagine that people begin to rally around that, ask questions, and there'll be incredible opportunities surrounding those things. I would absolutely love to see turquoise tables spread throughout our city from people of our church just to encourage um, you to live on mission every day in the little things that you do in your life. Be front yard people front instead yard of people. backyard people. <laughs>I know for me, that's a challenging story. I mean, it's great to see and I'm excited about it, but it's a challenging story because I am much more comfortable in my backyard than my front. I'm much more comfortable in my backyard with the fences up and the people that would come wandering in on the other side, right? So maybe, I don't know, maybe the reason that I got eat this week is not because I'm so good at it, but because this is a challenge for me too. And so if this is a challenge for you, I understand that, but I also hope that this is inspirational. I hope you were inspired by that story. I'll tell you something, Kim and Easton are super people, but they're not superheroes. They're just like you and like me, but they've, they began with prayer and they've been listening both to God and to their neighbors. And they put this table out there to eat and do life together. And in so doing, they're able to share their stories and hear the stories of their neighbors and serve their neighbors in this way. So again, this isn't the way, you don't have to do it this way, but just an example of thinking creatively about how we can extend this table to others, how we can have little glimpses of that messianic banquet here and now as the kingdom of God breaks in in the city around us. And it can be through some of these things. So here's the challenge. The challenge I have is for us to, to look at our meals every week. If you're on the low end, maybe it's 14, high end, maybe 21, or maybe you're one of those people who eat five small ones a day, but somewhere around 14 to 20 meals a week, take two of those. Take two of those and make them these intentional missional meals. And that, again, is a big challenge for me. So if it's a big challenge for you, start with one. Start with one a month. And it's okay to start with your friends, to build some of those muscles and get used to it. But the important thing is, 
so it doesn't just become about you and your friends, is always be thinking about who's not at the table yet. In fact, you might even just put an empty chair there to remind you that this table is not closed, but it's open to all. And then as you get more comfortable with it, then maybe you can extend even to the stranger. The word hospitality in the scriptures, it literally translates love of stranger. And everybody starts as stranger before they become friend. But strangers are loved, and they are not disqualified, and they need the table extended. So start with one, one a month, build from there. You don't have to cook some amazing meal. Go out to eat, have coffee, put a table in your front yard, put a fire pit in your front yard, whatever it is, and let's start uh, extending this table to those around us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank, that, I thank you that, uh, that you extended that table. Uh, God, you didn't just make us come to you uh, because it was, it was too hard. We couldn't just come to you on our own. Um, but you went to great lengths to invite us and to compel us and to convince us that the invitation is for us. God, if there's some here today who don't understand that, who still feel like they are, are outside uh, beyond the hedges and the highways and the byways. Uh, God, help us to live our lives as New City in such a way that, that our lives even compel them and help them understand that none are disqualified. Help us to come to your table. And as we do, Lord, we find your grace and your mercy and your love. And may we take that in and, and eat of those gifts so that we can become those things to those around us. And then help us to extend that table out into the world, out to where we work and live and play. Um, and help us to invite all to come and eat with you. In your name we pray. Amen. So towards the end of Isaiah, there's a, another envisioning of this banquet. And we see it in Isaiah chapter 56. And here are a, a few of the excerpts from that vision. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then Isaiah 56, 8, this is a key here, I feel. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered.